podcast from Trinity United Methodist Church in Ruston, Louisiana. Our prayer is that God uses this time to speak specifically to you, regardless of where you are on your faith journey. We'd like to also invite you to worship with us every Sunday morning at 1045, either in person or online at www.trinityruston.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It is great to see each of you. We are nearing the end of our church-wide E100 readings, and our passage this morning once again comes from those readings. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 23. Can we hear the word of God together? While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Would you pray with me? God, we hear your word. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask for the wisdom to understand it. Amen. There was a renowned philosopher who traveled on a lecture circuit day after day, year after year, delivering speeches. And he had a personal driver who went with him each and every time. The driver really looked up to him, and he memorized almost all of the lectures that the philosopher gave. Well, one day, they actually bore a resemblance to each other. One day, they were going to a uh, smaller, more obscure um, venue, and the driver said, Look, I've watched all your lectures. I've memorized them. How about you let me get up and deliver your lecture this evening, and you just pose as the driver. I'd like to see how that goes. Philosopher said, sure, that sounds like fun. I'd like a day off. Let's do it. So the driver delivers the lecture, does a great job, hits all the points, everything is well. They get to the end, and there's a Q&A time, and someone raises their hand and says, well, I have a question. Is the epistemological and metaphysical narrative that you're espousing consistent with the teleological origin of the universe? The driver said, look, that is a simple question. I'm going to show you how simple that question is. I'm going to have my driver come up and answer it. (laughs) It, It was the great church father, Tertullian, who asked this question. What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem. Basically, what Tertullian was saying was, is there any connection, any relevance between intellectualism and philosophy and religion and spirituality? Is there anywhere that these two 
come together? And for today, we can ask that question. Is there any place in our faith for intellectual reflection? And maybe even more importantly, is there any place in presenting our faith to others for philosophy? Well, Paul the Apostle seemed to think so. So Paul is doing what he does. He's traveling on one of his missionary journeys. This is his second journey. And he arrives in Athens. And he walks around and uh, Luke's um, writing tells us that Paul was deeply distressed because of the amount of idols that he saw in Athens. Remember, Athens is the center at the time for intellectual and philosophical thought. But it was also a place that explored spirituality on a grand scale. And in the Greek, the way this is worded, Paul saw what is painted as a forest of idols. Athens is a place that is truly a spiritual buffet. You can go along and take as much or as little from an incredible amount of spiritual options. Yet they still had some intellectual and philosophical side to this. Now, Paul does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogue. He starts talking to the Jews about Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of the prophecies. And normally when Paul goes somewhere, he gets in hot water with the Jewish leaders. That's typically who gets upset and they either beat Paul, run him out of town, put him in prison. Something bad generally happens because of this. Well, here, Paul doesn't run afoul of the Jewish Jewish religious leaders. He actually runs afoul of the intellectuals because what he also does is he goes out on the street corner and he starts having these discussions slash debates with folks. Now, we need to pause. This is not Paul standing on a corner with a bullhorn telling people they're going to hell. In this day, it was common practice for people to stand out in these particular places and present ideas and it was expected to receive engagement. There was a back and forth. There was a debate, but it wasn't debate like we know it today where people are just trying to make each other look stupid and themselves look good. It was actually a constructive exchange of information with an overall good looking to be achieved. So Paul's doing something that's well within the normal society of the day. But when he starts doing it, the people of Athens, the, the intellectuals especially, They accuse Paul of two things. The first thing they accuse him of is being a babbler. Now, here's what that means in their day. They're accusing Paul of being intellectually and philosophically weak. They're calling him an intellectual lightweight. See, they weren't opposed to new information, but they could not tolerate someone presenting it who didn't have the mental acumen in their mind to be the one to present. So they accuse Paul of this. Secondly, they accuse him of preaching, quote unquote, foreign gods. Now, again, why would that seem to be an issue when there's a forest of idols out there? Well, it wasn't wrong to present a new God in that day to Athens, but you had to follow a protocol. First, you had to name the God. Second, you had to prove that the God had a desire to come and reside in Athens Third, you had to show that the God residing in Athens would prove to be a benefit to the Athenians, to them, their culture, their economy, everything else. And Paul really did 
none of that. Even though he named Jesus Christ, they didn't quite see it as Paul following the protocol. So what they do is they get upset and the Greek is unclear. It's either they went along with him or they grabbed him and took him. Either way would be believable. They took him to a place called the Areopagus. Now this is this open air area where the city council met and they would hear different cases on things. So Paul is at the Areopagus and they say, okay, you started to give this talk out in the streets. Tell us now, we want to hear it. And basically Paul and not just Paul, but the faith of Jesus Christ is now intellectually on trial. Now you might think Paul's in Athens. These are heavyweights, right? You might think this would be hard for Paul to counteract them. But for Paul, someone who is this smart and has this much gifting from God, it's, it's super easy. It's barely an inconvenience for Paul to address these people and to take their intellectualism and turn it on its head. Now, fast forward. What's this have to do with us today? I don't know about you, but I've heard people tell me the Christian faith is intellectually weak. I've heard people accuse me of being intellectually or philosophically shallow. But I think there's some great truths to what Paul tells the people. Paul's speech here at the Areopagus is one of the great apologetic discourses in the scriptures and in history. And we don't have time to go into depth into the whole thing, but there are a few points in here that I think are really, really important for us today. First, Paul makes the point that we were all created to worship. So Paul walks along and he says, you know, men of Athens, I see all of your idols. I see that you're very religious. But you've got a shrine labeled to the unknown God. Here's what they did. Remember the Greek gods could be capricious and volatile. They tried to cover all their bases, but they said, you know what? In case we missed one that we should have recognized, let's just label it to the unknown God. That way, if if that God gets mad, we can say, no, 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 this one's for you. Paul points this out and says, look, you, you are seeking the divine. And that's where he starts from. I think most people are spiritual to some degree or another. Yes, it it can be very chic to claim to be an atheist, but I found in my life the saying, there's no atheists in foxholes to be true. You come up against hard enough times, you'll start looking anywhere for help, including up to heaven. We were created all people created in the very image of God. There is something within us that seeks out the divine. And even if we don't know we're doing it, even if we are just seeking art, beauty, truth itself, well, who is the author? Who is the personification of beauty and truth itself? If not God Almighty, as we enjoy and experience nature, 
Are we not basking in the glory of God himself? We all, to some degree or another, seek out the divine because we were created in the image of God. And Paul does something important here. Paul doesn't start out by telling people how they've been wrong the whole time. He starts out by telling them how they've been right. They just didn't realize it. How they have been on the right track seeking God. Friend, if you engage someone from another religion, don't start out by telling them how wrong they are. Because it's quite possible that they are simply seeking out God in the only way that's been presented to them. We were all created to worship. Now, here's the second point. And I'm going to balance out what I just said. We were all created to worship. And other religions may very well be an attempt to seek out the divine. Yet the point Paul makes secondly in his discourse is that there is definitively one true God. I know today that sounds very intolerant. Some people would say that sounds very arrogant. Who are you to say that your God is the right God when there are so many other gods throughout history? I saw this post on Facebook the other day. You know, I, I love memes because, because they're always philosophically and intellectually sound and they have integrity and memes are always right. The meme said, of all the thousands and thousands of gods throughout history, yeah, sure, yours is the only right one. Okay, let's see what Paul has to say about that. After Paul tells them this one true God is the one you've been trying to worship the whole time, here's what Paul goes on to say. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall. He determined their boundaries. Now, we could have a whole series of sermons on apologetics explaining why Yahweh is the one true God. Why the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, why this is the one true God. And we don't have time to go into all of it today. But let me give you a couple things that Paul said here. Paul was a brilliant philosopher and a brilliant orator. And he said a lot in between the lines. First, he said that the one true God is not confined to a particular people or area. Remember, the Athenians said, okay, if you're going to prove a new God exists and is here, you have to prove that this God will benefit us and prove this God wants to reside in Athens. See, these people wanted to do what too many religions do. They wanted to contain their God. So many other little g gods are the God of one race or one nation or one culture. So many other gods are there for political and social advancement. So many other gods are bound by longitude and latitude. Friends, our God is not. Our our God is not the God of white folks 
Our God is not the God of black folks. Our God is not the God of Asian or Hispanic folks. Our God is the God of all the peoples of the earth. And all are called to worship the one true God. Our God's not an American God. Our God is not a European God. Our God is not an African God. Our God is the God of the entire earth. And our God does not belong to any one culture or any one nation over another. The one true God is the God of all the earth, of all time, of all peoples, and will always be. Secondly, the one true God, as Paul shows here, is both transcendent and personal. So what you have with these Greek gods, generally, the more powerful a God was in this Greek culture, the more disconnected they were with humankind. The most powerful gods, they were up and off doing big, important things. They didn't care about us. They sent little demigods to deal with us. So the flip side of that is the more involved with us one of their gods was, the more limited their power. Now think back with me to Genesis. Okay, Genesis 1 and 2. You get two creation accounts that are a little different from one another. In Genesis, when God created, what action did God take to create? Somebody tell me. He spoke. God spoke, said, let there be light, and there was light. God said this, God said that. In Genesis 1, God simply spoke. This God is powerful enough to merely speak, and it happens. This is how much authority and power this God has. So this God is not the sun or the moon, which some people thought was the case. This God is above and beyond all creation and has the power to simply speak and things come into being. And yet in Genesis 2, how does God create humankind? By stooping down and by forming us with his hands. So not only is this God above and beyond and more than anything, this God is intimately involved and invested in us. The God who tells the oceans to stop cares about what happens in your life. I did see this on Facebook and I liked it. Think about this. The God who created, who formed the mountains and the beaches thought the world needed one of you. Our God, the one true God, one of the things that makes God God is the fact that God is all-powerful and yet intimately involved, transcendent and personal. And the final thing that Paul says here, and this is what I find to be true, people ask me today, well, what differentiates Christianity from all the other religious options? To me, it's simple. Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. All these other religions are humans trying to get to God. Because we have that divine image, these, all these idols, you had to do or say the right things in the right order at the right times to get the God to do something. All other religions are people trying to work their way to God. And friends, Christianity is about God coming to us. The resurrection is check and mate because it makes Jesus Christ different from any religious figure in history. The one true God 
has proven he is the only true God through his actions towards us. And then Paul makes this final point, and and this is a beautiful point. So not only were we made to worship to seek the divine, and not only can we know that there is one true God, we can personally know this one God. If you read back through the scriptures, and this is what Paul's alluding to, God has only and ever sought after us. Look at this. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul's writing is consistent that God is for us, that God wants a relationship with us, that God desires reconciliation. And then once we are reconciled, then we are to work as ambassadors and agents of reconciliation through the rest of creation, caring for creation itself and showing others that restoration and reconciliation with God is not only possible, but God wants it. God desires it for them. This is an incredible thing. The word gospel literally translates to good news. And the good news that Paul presents here is that we were made to worship. There is something in all of us that seeks out the divine because we are created in the image of God. But secondly, with the religious options that are available, and they are many, we can also know that there is one true God. We can know the right option. But thirdly and most importantly, that one true God has been seeking from the beginning a relationship with you and with me. That is really good news. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for your actions towards us. We are grateful to be made in your image. Lord, forgive us when we fail to reflect your image. Forgive us when we diminish your image. And Lord, help us hear your call. And beyond that, help us answer it. Help us see the relationship to which you're calling us. And may we have the grace and the courage to open our hearts to it this day. Amen. As you're able, will you stand and worship with us? Thanks for listening to The Refuge Podcast. To find out more about The Refuge and Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityruston.org.